Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with uh, Jason Granite. This is part two. We had an extended conversation. We intended to get into regulation and uh, aspects of gambling. I don't think sports card collecting is gambling, but there's a quasi-gambling aspect of it. So wanted to deal uh, with that, with Jason being a Wall Street guy. Thanks, sponsors. Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, CompC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards. Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, and Tops, Upper Deck, and Panini. So thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, Jason. And here it is. It looks like the bond market, when you get the AAA rating, is the 10. The AA rating is the 9. We saw the, the complications that those things, because people believe them differently than they believed other things. You hear, buy the card, not the grade. So I would encourage people to think about what they're buying, not just what's at the top of the label, but it provides a big standardization, a big source of liquidity, which is very good for a lot of people in the chain, which is why you saw literally millions and millions of cards get clogged in, in the pipes because everyone saw that the value of that liquidity was quite frankly priceless, which is why they had to turn it off. Liquidity is increased. The velocity of sales, the ability to sell something, grading has really enhanced that. And there's a bunch of different grading companies. Even within grading companies, we shouldn't oversell grading. My point is that grading two nines are not fungible and the company should not want that to be the case. Then you would not be buying the, the card, you'd be buying the holder. You have weak nines and strong nines. You have a nine from one company, a nine from another company. I'm in favor of anything that requires skill and education. And uh, the people that were buying bonds back 13 years ago, only with regard to the bond ratings, because there's more than one of those two, but they still went with the flow. I'm in favor of things where you should do some level of your own research, like in bonds with the underlying assets that are there. They did. That problem wouldn't happen. Yeah, completely agree. And what's interesting to me is that I believe Fanatics is invested in CGC as well. If I have my- my I have some common ownership, yeah. Yeah. And so they have a piece of CGC. They're making the card. They're looking at secondary market. They're looking at the chain from A to Z. And I like the fact that Tops was over here and PSA was over here, or Panini was over here and Beckett is over here. It created a separation between the production of the thing and the and the- scoring of the thing when everything's under the same umbrella the production of the thing the scoring of the thing the distribution of the thing all start to get commingled i think the market's going to have to watch that very closely now i understand why fanatics is interested in a to z owning all the pieces of the chain in capitalism we talk about anti-monopoly but what you're talking about with fanatics is beyond monopoly it's toward totalitarian complete control of the whole food chain. If they can do that, then they have pricing power at every level. So it's beyond the ability of a monopoly just to be the producer of something and to control all the production. They're going to control the production, the distribution, the resale, the grading, the marketplace, every transaction. I don't want that. We could be in a situation in five years What we thought we wanted is basketball cards to be produced by not just Panini, but also for Tops to be able to produce some basketball cards and Upper Deck to produce some basketball cards. And same thing with baseball. Hey, why can't Upper Deck do some brands, some of their sub-brands? All of them could do football. In five years, we could have that. It's just that they're all owned by fanatics is that we do have upper deck baseball cards. We do have tops baseball cards. We do have Panini baseball cards and basketball and football, but they're all under a Fanatics umbrella. 
that's a level of control. Then, like we're saying, the, the players' associations have a stake in that. They're going to want to make it work. But most players' associations have a, a shorter uh, time horizon. Rise and tides lift all boats. Fanatics rise the tide really high. As someone who's a collector and participant in the market and likes doing with my kids, I'm not at the scale of all these other people, but I consider myself to be a participant in the right way with my family. Rise and tides are good for everyone. On the flip side, A to Z control, as you just described, can lead to not great outcomes for certain participants in, in the market. I think we should all be rooting for that. Look, when I grew up with Kirby Puckett being my favorite player, I had the Fleer card, the Don Russ card, the Topps card. They were all different. I had the chance to go out and get them. Now, if my son's favorite player is Julius Randle on the Knicks. Now, Panini has different versions, but it's just the Panini card. I've heard folks complain about the lack of creativity, and it's been somewhat monopolistic recently. Panini only makes Julius Randle cards. No one else does. If I want to get my son a Julius Randle card, I got to go to Panini to get it, basically, is where I stand today. But what I think will meaningfully improve is there'll be in the distribution business, they'll be in the moving business, and we won't have things fall off into storage, which is why we saw some sad scenes in front of Targets and Walmarts over the last year, because the distribution wasn't moving smoothly. So I think the distribution will move smoothly, which will help us, the collectors. But I share some of the concerns that value chain might also cause some challenges. People talk about how hard is it to make cards or to publish cards, but it's all in the distribution. It's not that hard to make a card or to print up cards, things like that. But the distribution and fanatics, I think, is going to be disturbing and hopefully in a good way. The distribution channels, that those will be rethought in terms of what's best. And I'm totally with you on if there's too much holdback. My number is 10%. If it's 10%, that's fine. That's an interesting play. If it's more than that, now you're talking about where we were 30 years ago with the junk wax, where people were setting back massive amounts, thinking they were going to get really wealthy and the opposite. What's your view on full transparency of production numbers? Let's say Fanatics put out how many 2028 NBA cards they made of some set, right? Let's say it was known. We produced 10 million of card number one, 10 million of card number two, whatever. So they strip away all of that and they tell you that some sets are lower produced and some sets are higher produced. And they set a baseline for the market. When you have other assets and financial markets come to market, you know exactly how many shares of any public company exist. Therefore, the fundamentals drive the price as opposed to some of those technicals. Those are interesting things that I imagine Fanatics is considering. I'm not saying they're good, bad, or indifferent, but those are some changes that could exist in the system. I think they're bad. I'm all in favor of more education, really understanding and doing your homework and all that stuff. But there needs to be a mystique. They would pop the bubble of the mystique if they put exactly how many. Rich Klein and I just got some actual pretty verifiable production numbers from some of the Pacific sets. We're close friends with the founder at It's been a defunct company now for almost 20 years, but we have original production numbers. And even though it's millions of cards, they're larger or smaller, depending on how you want to look at it. But having the actual number of not just this is how many were produced, but this is where they were distributed. This is what went to retail, went to card shops. This is what went to each place. And here's the insert ratios and all that stuff. It's fascinating, but that's 20-year-old data. It'd be problematic if people knew how many cards were being produced. I think 
they would be overwhelmed with the size. The closest thing we have to that is PSA's pop reports, but that's a small percentage of the cards that are out there. Yeah. Some of the big numbers on the pop report, quote unquote, scare people. If you had 20,000 of a card graded by PSA, people would say that's a very high pop count. Let's just pretend uh, because we're talking about Julius Randall. There's 20,000 Julius Randall cards on the pop report. There were more than 20,000 people at the game last night, right? In the building. So if everyone in the building wants one, all of a sudden the whole pop is, is gone. And there's a whole big world out there. This is where I think fanatics can meaningfully change the game because they control the vendors in a lot of the stadiums, point of sale to people that are in the stadium or watching the game. And obviously the phone connectivity of mobile has shrunk that a lot. But take football, 20,000 Justin Herberts, there's four times that in the stadium, one game. When you do your homework and you think about it, all of a sudden it's not that big. <laughs> they're a small fraction of the total cards. Yeah, you know. The market cap idea that people have thrown out, it isn't just the market cap, the graded ones. It's almost like a GNP, a gross national product of what's the total value of all the cards that are produced that are out there. You can't separate the 20,000 Knicks fan who, if somebody said, hey, here's a Julius Randle card, they'd stick it in their pocket. Okay. But if you say, hey, it's a hundred bucks, or if it's 10 bucks, or it's five bucks, or it's 50 bucks, you can't separate it from the price. Everybody would like to have one. In fact, now, I think people would say if you gave them one, they'd say, yeah, I'll take that. Whereas five years ago, they'd say, what do I need this for? Now they'd say, hey, this might be valuable. But if you found out there were a million Julius Randle cards, then those 20,000 that are graded, you'd think the market could be flooded at some point. I don't think there are a million, but there's a lot more than 20,000. No, I'm I'm with you. But where I'm mildly disagree is I'd say that people would get educated on what the market could absorb. All of a sudden, a million is different when there's people in Asia who want basketball cards. And even though the numbers feel heavy sometimes, they're actually not that heavy when the distribution network changes. So now you're at the Madison Square Garden and you go to buy chicken nuggets and you go buy a soda and then a pack of cards is also on the MSG app because Fanatics now has this. Fanatics could pull that off. Yeah, easy. And not, not even with a lot of work. Easy. If I had a chance of getting an overpriced soda or overpriced anything, do you want French fries with that? No, I'd rather have the Julius Randall. <laughs> look, it's very real to live in a world where that's the case. You're on the NBA app or the Major League Baseball app. And like now you can do it. You can buy a jersey or a program or whatever they have in the stadium. Cards are just another thing on the Fanatic shelf. And so I think that's coming. So when that distribution happens, man, the tide and the sea is going to go way up and the boat's going to go way up. It's still not in their best interest to publish numbers. The the idea of a collectible ought to have some scarcity to it. If you commoditize it too much. They can have both. And and this is part of the issue with getting kids involved and getting this. They can have ones that are just literally made for the purpose of enjoying like in, in that kind of way. They can make other ones that are specifically designed for a different demographic, a different audience. And you can build stages if you get the newer audience involved in the ones that are cheaper and accessible, maybe they'll get attracted to it. And that might pull a percentage of them into the next group where the different money and the different things are. That's an interesting way to manage the interest in your products over time. I'm an education guy. I'm a numbers guy. As soon as you give me one firm data point, then I can extrapolate somewhat. If I know actual production numbers of certain product, any product that Panini does, then I can compare and contrast to say, look, if I know there were a hundred cases of that product and that's 
scarcer, half as plentiful as this other one, then maybe there's 200 cases of this other one, all things being equal. Or 1,000 or 2,000. These are just things I'm thinking about on what could change the dynamic. We're clearly at a fork in the road over the next few years in this world. A different public profile has a different amount of money attached to it. You have professional athletes and professional people directly investing in some of the grading companies and, and other things. It's, it's a totally different ball game in terms of money and attention. And at the same time, you have an, a very unique, unbelievable distribution company taking over. Those two things happening at the same time, it's just so interesting from a business perspective. Maybe in another life, I'll be a finance professor at Harvard, but the Harvard business case study on this is going to be just shockingly, unbelievably cool sometime down the road. Yeah, this would be a good one for that. I I went to Harvard for many years for executive education and the professors. Several of them were very aware of our sports card industry. I I got cold called a couple of times by uh, professors that that knew what I did and were saying, how could this happen in your industry? And again, the, the curious part was always the fact that there was this collectability, this appreciation that older was better than newer, which is not as much the case now. And so... It'll be fascinating. Yeah, but I think those things go in cycles, right? You're, we're in favor of self-regulation, not government regulation. If if there's more card grading uh, services, hopefully they would compete where they need to compete, but cooperate where they can to uh, make sure there's trust in our industry. Yeah, look, trust and guardrails and, and companies incented to do that is a great thing for, for us. The invisible hand becoming unbelievably visible and involved is not a good thing. Yeah, not a- I love every part of this hobby. It's done amazing things for my family and I. I think it's a great education tool um, for kids, for adults. I think learning bid offer and understanding if you buy something, want to sell something, understanding what appreciation looks like, linking it back to performance. Just because a player had a good game doesn't mean the card will go up. There's other factors. The tools here are amazing for parents and schools and so much good here. And quite frankly, the rising level of water in this industry is very substantial. And that's a really good thing. I teach my kids math on the numbers on the back of the card and we were learning percentages on the standings. And so endless tools for parents and families to engage and also create like a love of collecting. Look, I work on Wall Street. The amount of interest and chatter about this on Wall Street is meaningfully palpable. So, anyway, thanks, thanks, Jason. My pleasure. Be well. Stay safe.